Ontology, the Waystation of Red Pill Sanity Written by William Leo Translated by Deep L and a Human Read for you by Eric, Jenny, Mia, and many other bots Previously in the Ontology podcast series The Taliban can be converted, integrated and disbanded while the Islamic State is a lifelong vowed professional revolutionary organization that cannot be disbanded but only annihilated. Judging from IS documents seized by the US, the Islamic State exhibits, contrary to prevailing impressions, striking similarities to the Communist International and the Soviet Union. History shows the Taliban is likely to be a transitory phenomenon that shall gradually be swallowed up by the Islamic State. Season 4 The Islamic World and the Inner Asian Order Episode 4. China's Imperial Gamble in Afghanistan Afghanistan is the first touchstone of Chinese imperialism and an experimental step towards China's imperialist transformation, so success or failure in this game is of utter importance to China. China started first and foremost as a branch of the Comintern, whose mission was to subvert the former Republic of China and the Western imperialist vassal regimes in Southeast Asia for the Comintern. During this period, its activities were not significantly different from other activities of the Comintern around the world. China went through a second phase when Mao Zedong, feeling that he had feathered his own nest, vied for leadership of the international communist movement and broke with the Soviet Union. This was when China's operations abroad adopted a dual policy of opposing both the old imperialism and Soviet imperialism and were quickly and disastrously defeated. The riots in Hong Kong in the 1960s, the collapse of the Malayan People's Army in Malaya, and the coup d'état in Indonesia, for example, were all setbacks to China's unilateral foreign policy after its break with the Soviet Union. The result of the series of setbacks put China's own security at risk, leading to the diplomatic revolution of 1972, which turned China into part of the anti-Soviet camp led by the United States and culminated in Deng Xiaoping's complete cessation of China's underground activities in Southeast Asia. After the collapse of the Soviet Union, Deng Xiaoping, still in power behind the scenes, strictly forbade any anti-American activities by Chinese overseas organizations out of fear. These were the overseas activities during the period of reform and opening up of China. During this period, China's overseas activities tended to be innocuous or to behave as vassals of the Anglo-American forces it had opposed. This was China's overseas activities during the period of the so-called hide one's capabilities and bide one's time strategy. This pattern, eventually, transitioned into the militant, neo-imperialist pattern we now see in the Xi Jinping era, which emphasizes Chinese imperialism over communism. It has changed from a role in which, as Obama said, China was a free rider and not a contributor, to a role in which it is and will be actively contributing, but not within the framework of the US international system, but in the form of Chinese imperialism, which is subversive and destructive. We should understand that the low profile of China's overseas activities during the hide and abide phase was out of consideration for the cost. It is well known how forbiddingly expensive the US fleet is. American aircraft carriers are deployed around the world and maintain world order. The US military is the largest in the world which does not maintain just the security of the United States, but of the whole world, so a large portion of the cost is also shared by the countries of the world. China was hitching a ride because it couldn't afford this cost. It can only take the side route, 
playing a secondary and complementary role in the international system that the U.S. has built since the fall of the Soviet Union, doing the dirty work that no one else wanted to do, making a little bit of money for itself and allowing U.S. capitals to take the lion's share, while essentially entrusting the U.S. with security and political tasks. This was the model, for example, in Ethiopia, where a massive civil war recently broke out, and it was the result of a joint U.S.-China anti-Soviet effort. China has engaged in a lot of infrastructure work across the world, which is high in risk and low in profit at once. Infrastructure can lead to subsequent economic development, but the fruits of such development usually do not go to the infrastructure developer who often has to suffer losses. As a result, poorer countries, such as those in Africa and, of course, Afghanistan, are often poor in infrastructure. Despite the global capital surplus after the end of the Cold War, very little capital from developed countries is willing to invest in infrastructure in such politically unstable and often security-risky places. Such tasks are often undertaken by China. And the new generation of Chinese embracing Xi Jinping's imperialist ambitions is always eager for the day when China will stop hitchhiking and start its own international system. Then, as we all know, after China had amassed trillions of dollars in foreign exchange reserves, the Xi Jinping era saw the end of the policy of hiding and abiding. China began to believe it could be adventurous and reveal itself as a new imperialist. But China is an inexperienced neo-imperialist, so almost everywhere it has pursued neo-imperialism, going beyond the US framework and building its own framework, there have been serious political crises. Three typical examples are Afghanistan, Myanmar, and Ethiopia. All three places, as we know, are now in the grip of intense civil wars. These three places happen to be the experimental sites for China's new imperialism. Of these, Afghanistan is clearly the most dangerous. China's overseas investments, Chinese expat communities, and exported corruptions are often intrinsically linked. China's expansion of its overseas power during the Hyde Anabide period was essentially a process of exporting corruption. Similarly, the corrupt Pashtun warlords are the main foothold of the operatives of the Chinese Communist Party in Afghanistan, and the Taliban's relationship with China was built from this. Within two decades of the War on Terror, the Taliban gradually transformed itself from the anti-warlord grassroots movement of the past into a new warlord organization. In order to fight a modern war, it needed modern weapons and a lot of money, just like the old warlords of the past. In the process, the new Taliban warlords, who colluded with the Pashtun warlords, started to have dealings with the communist agents and Chinese investors. This connection was indirect, through the new warlords in Kandahar. But at least in the Obama era, China was only an ancillary among the various players in Afghanistan, a humble wage earner. Afghanistan is increasingly mired in warlordism, with the few elite US-trained troops unable to keep the country together, and the government departments in Kabul became puppets of the warlords. The Americans grew weary, they actually planned to withdraw over a decade ago and had been gradually pulling out. At this point, China began to launch its own neo-imperialist operation and began to have relations with the Taliban. China's negotiations and dealings with the Taliban became public at least four or five years ago. Prior to the publicized dealings, there had already been a lot of economic activities and monetary transactions in private in Kandahar. This has given Xi Jinping's ambitious administration handle and a foothold to operate its policies. The new policy is a nakedly imperialist policy, which I call the continental system. Under the guidance of the new policy, 
China is required to keep only political accounts rather than economic ones, to operate the Pakistani port of Gwadar, to open up the China-Pakistan economic corridor, and to establish a political and economic partnership with Iran, which is heavily sanctioned by the US. All these endeavors are without exception economically unprofitable, even loss-making, but they will provide China with a large and solid backstop outside the US system. If necessary, China could then obtain oil and strategic supplies through Pakistan and Iran, allowing it to remain viable outside the US system. Despite the fact that it was a bleeding hole in purely economic terms, China embarked on the China-Pakistan Economic Corridor and the China-Iran Economic Cooperation. At this point, Afghanistan's importance was exponentially elevated. Afghanistan and Pakistan are, as Karzai put it, conjoined twins. The close relationship between Pakistan and the Taliban also led to the development of relations between China and the Taliban. The time has come for China and the Taliban to collaborate to build a continental system that included Iran and Pakistan, all that was required were the Taliban and money. The Taliban is the largest warlord in the south of Afghanistan. It could not have entered the eastern city of Kabul with the power of the Pashtun tribes alone. Besides, Kabul has a population of 7 million. The Taliban can sustain itself because it doesn't have the huge expenses of a major city. The government of the Republic of Afghanistan has essentially the same income as the Taliban. The Taliban has over a billion dollars of income, while the government of the Republic of Afghanistan has over a billion dollars of income as well, but six billion dollars or more of expenditure. Four-fifths of that comes from international donations, three-quarters of it from the United States, so the Kabul government can sustain itself. The Taliban, on the other hand, could not sustain itself if it went into Kabul. So the Taliban did not want to go into Kabul and carry this huge burden if it did not have foreign aid. Similarly, to appease the warlords in the north, all that is really needed is money. Most warlords are willing to shift sides at any time for money or to fall in line with the strongest. Given enough money, many warlords would fall to the Taliban, creating a kind of Taliban aggressiveness throughout the country. And within the Afghan government, the Pashtuns are extremely unhappy with the strutting Tajiks who still control the military even during the Pashtun presidency. They often felt that they, as the majority nationality, were instead being oppressed by the minority. And the Taliban's arrival in the capital could make them raise their eyebrows. All it takes to make the Pashtun warlords and top Pashtun officials within the Afghan Republican government unite with the Taliban to overthrow the Republic and thereby wipe out the Tajiks and Uzbeks they despite is patient and meticulous underground work and a lot of money. Both of which China is able to provide. Thank you for listening. This is a podcast series produced by Luminous Society. Luminous Society provides you with an alternative historical narrative.